Good morning, Faith family. Merry Christmas. My wife picked me out a tie today. Thank you, honey. So it's officially Christmas. So we prepare our hearts for the coming December month here of January 20, December 25th. We are preparing with this um, sermon series called The Portrait of a Servant. And Jesus is the ultimate servant. The ultimate picture of a servant. And we've looked at some other pictures of a servant. We've looked at Barnabas, the friend. We've looked at Stephen, willing to suffer to serve others. We looked at last week, Philip, willing to share the good news. And today we're looking at Saul, who's willing to be a a living testimony of a sinner saved by grace. And I don't know what you know about Saul, but He's also called Paul by his Roman name, and he wrote about a fourth of the New Testament and was one of the greatest figures in Christianity. He is um, even the non-religious look at Paul as an earth shaker of the ancient world. And he has a conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts 9 that we'll look at today. And it talks about his conversion and we don't really use the word conversion a lot in our circles. We, we talk about it as receiving Christ or finding God, starting a relationship with God, being born again. Um, but understanding how conversion works, seeing an example of that, I think will be really beneficial to our church. There's a story of one little boy who was asked what a conversion was, and he said it's the field goal you kick after a touchdown. And so, if that's our view of conversion today, well, you're going to need to listen up to see what God has to say about a conversion. It doesn't just get a point on the scoreboard, but enters your life into a relationship with God forever. And I want to show you here out of 1 Timothy a little sneak peek into what an older version of Saul thinks about his conversion. So Saul was converted as a young man, and yet now as an almost elderly Saul is writing to another young man named Timothy, he tells this perspective of his own conversion, his own testimony in these scriptures. And so in 1 Timothy, I want to give you the sneak peek. And it tells us how we're to interpret Saul's conversion. He says this. Remember, years have gone by as he's thinking back. And you can think back to the moment you first realized who Jesus was. Okay? Saul is doing that as he thinks back. And he's filled with thanksgiving. He goes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. Remember, back in chapter 8, Paul gave approval to killing and stoning Stephen for being a Christian. And as he shares his testimony throughout Acts, it comes up again in Acts 22 and again in 26. He mentions it many times in the New Testament letters. Think of the conscience of this guy and that he went around killing, killing people in the church in which he now serves. 
he says, In my insolence I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. So he is very thankful that God, in his mercy, filled him with faith and filled him with love and set his life on a different course. Verse 15 now. He says, This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example. So he's an example. Just like Barnabas was introduced as Barnabas, as for example. Philip was introduced. Philip, for example. They're examples for us. The portrait of what a servant should look like. It says here that he is a prime example of what? prime example of God's great patience with even the worst of sinners. That others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen? Amen. So thank God for that. And so with that introduction, I'll invite Brad, one of our six elders, to come and give our scripture today. He'll read the first part of our passage of Saul's conversion. And remember that this is an example to be listened to. That no matter where you've been, what you've done, even in the worst of sinners, whether in your life or the person you know or the person that you think is just an absolute enemy of God, God can reach that person. And if that person is you, God can reach you. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Rob. All right, I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 9 in Acts. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation and the rest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. There's a word, a short one-syllable word that's in these verses. Um, that word is uh, way. It's kind of ironic. Um, I believe God brought that word to me this morning. Um, I'm going through a Christmas devotional, and the whole devotional this morning was based on John 14:6, which says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Um, often in this situation, um, Saul was persecuting Christians, and um, he maybe didn't like the traditions that they had, the way they lived, the way they spoke, their political stance. I think that happens today. A lot of times we have uh, maybe discussions with people who maybe don't believe what we believe, and they want to pick on some side um, facet of our faith, maybe our political views, uh, what we do on uh, the weekends, um, how we live. Um, ultimately, though, Christ uh, speaks to Saul and says, I'm the one you're, you're persecuting. It's Jesus speaking to you. And I think that's the key in our faith as we interact with others. 
we can't forget it's about Jesus. It's not about how we live, what we eat, whether we play cards or don't play cards or what political stance we have. It's about Christ. And uh, I think that's the way that we need to continue to keep in mind. It's about Jesus. Thank you, Beth. Well, let's pray here this morning. Jesus, it, it is about you. And as you cried out, Saul, Saul, to get his attention, to let him realize that it is about you, I pray that you would cry out the name of each person here into their heart. Lord, get their attention. Get our attention. That we might put our eyes on you and follow in your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Again, this is taken right from that text we just read that Saul is a prime example of God's great patience with even the worst sinner. That others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. So let's see that played out here in Acts chapter 9. So going to verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, so as Philip was going out and serving, as the church was being persecuted and scattered, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill. Wow. Sounds like a bad guy. And yet at the same time, before Christ, with every breath, we were totally depraved of goodness. We were an enemy of God. And you might say to yourself, well, I wasn't that bad. I wasn't eager to kill. But in your relationship with God, you were separated from Him. You were an enemy of God. It was impo- without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so Saul was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he came up with this plan. He went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So in other words, he got a warrant for, for their arrest and the cooperation of the synagogues. Now these Christians had spread outside of Israel. They had to flee for their lives. And they're settling in some of the nearest cities outside of Israel, including Damascus, which is where he ends up going. I just love this testimony of Saul. As we read the rest of the New Testament letters, it's so fun to see perhaps Paul's experience come into play. For example, he writes a letter to the Romans in Romans 5.8 when he says, While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The passage goes on to talk about how we were enemies of God. And nothing from our own merit, God brought us to, to friendship and relationship with Him. Paul lived this out. Okay? So much of this is from his own experiences. He writes. So back to the setting. Saul is going to Damascus, which is about a six day walk. And so, 
a zealous Jew would plan that six-day walk probably between the Sabbaths. And as we go to verse 3, as he approached Damascus, after six days, it's probably on a Friday at that point, when a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him and he fell to the ground, which is an appropriate response when you're in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now the next verse shows he doesn't know who this is yet. Maybe he thought it was Stephen. He doesn't know. <laughs> but here is someone saying that he's persecuting them. And I'm sure he was terrified. The word Saul, Saul, there's no punctuation in the original Bible. But when there's repetition, it's an exclamation. It's trying to say, I'm trying to get your attention. It's like saying, Rob, Rob. Saul hadn't been listening. That's why God had to raise his voice a little bit there. And on this six-day journey, maybe there was a slowing down for Saul (laughs) to hear that voice. I don't know. But he heard it. Not from his own merit. God made it clear. God was bringing faith to Saul. And he said, why are you persecuting? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting Stephen? He says, why are you persecuting me? I find great comfort in that. That Jesus Christ not only suffered for us, but he suffers with us. That he felt the pain of Stephen when Stephen died. That he was close to Stephen when Stephen suffered for his faith. That as Stephen looked into heaven in his dying breath and saw the open arms of Jesus, it was because Jesus was right there enveloping him, suffering with him. Paul later on teaches a lot about the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 mentions how if one part suffers, all the parts suffer. And we usually preach that and teach that, and rightly so, about how one member of the church is connected to another member of the church. But another part of that teaching is that Christ is the head of the church, as Colossians 1 makes very clear. And that Christ suffers with you when you suffer. And he holds people accountable for messing with his kids. So he says, Saul, Saul, you're messing with my kids. We're about to have a talk. I want to make another point here too. Seeing this brilliant light, the glory and manifestation and dwelling of Christ Jesus, I want to introduce to you a gap in the worldview of Saul. You see, back in the Old Testament, the presence of God appeared in a burning bush. 
and then in a pillar of fire, and then in the tabernacle of the Lord in the most holy place. It was a brilliant presence, overwhelming presence. And then it resided in the temple above the Ark of the Covenant in the throne room of God in the holy place. But the people of God were unfaithful and the temple was torn down and ransacked. And the presence of God was removed from the temple. And here, years later, they rebuilt the temple a second time. And they rebuilt the throne room of God. Except they had no Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. There was no longer the presence of God residing and dwelling in that place. Which would make you wonder, make these Jews wonder, where's God? Well, as the prophets foretold, He was coming as the Messiah. That the presence of God, His dwelling, His manifestation was going to be in the face of Christ. That gap of worldview was revealed to Saul as he looked at the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory of God in Jesus Christ, realizing this was the missing piece. This was it. Verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do next. As Acts 26 refers to his testimony, it adds the phrase, It is useless to fight against my will. God is determined he is going to bring faith to Saul. Even while Saul was an enemy of God, fighting against God, opposing his people. I find it interesting that Saul claims to have been taught by Gamaliel, a teacher of the law of the day, and he actually had shown up in Acts 5. His advice to, his follow, to those around him was, if this whole Christianity thing is false, it's just going to fall apart. But if it's of God, you will find yourself fighting and opposing God himself. And those words probably rang true for Saul from his teacher saying, he was right. <laughs> I am finding myself directly opposed to God in this situation. And as much as he tried to persecute the church, it didn't fail, did it? Because he found himself fighting against God. God will not let his church fail. Verse 7, please. The men with Saul, they stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Paul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So his companions don't know what's going on. God could have revealed himself to them in that moment, but this 
was designed for Paul. Not because he was better than his companions, but because of God's grace poured out to this man, he was going to see the light. And three days later, <clears throat> in darkness, does this sound like the Jesus story? <laughs> Laid in darkness on a Friday and on Sunday, let's continue to read about what happens. So now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. So potentially in a church service like this, on a Sunday, Ananias is being told how he, he can serve. He says, yes. And in verse 11, he gets his instructions. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have also shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Sounds like a good plan. But Ananias doesn't want to do it. <laughs> Verse 13, he says, But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I have heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. And as Nias says, Surely you don't mean the worst of sinners, Lord. <laughs> Surely you don't mean that guy. I mean, he's tearing down our church. You can't possibly, your arm can't reach that far, can it? Ananias, he doesn't want to do it. He's afraid. He's afraid of those that can do terrible things. Those that seemingly have authority. Those who seemingly can arrest and bind the church. But again, the church cannot be bound, Ananias. There's a sovereign God that the church prayed to in Acts 4. Their opening prayer was, O oh, sovereign God, hear the threats against your church and give us boldness in serving you. Verse 15. Now, I'm just going to repeat that. Nobody binds the church. <laughs> All right? That is why I got into ministry. Because nothing else has the promise of God to be unstoppable. No nation, no football team. <laughs> but the church has that promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's the winning team. You read in Revelation, the prevailing church wins because Jesus won. And this is an invitation today. If you're not right with God, you can join the winning team. He won the game. He's got a jersey ready for you. You know those guys at championship games where they don't play a minute and yet they get to stand in the parade and cheer? We get to be one of those guys. All glory, all honor, all credit in Jesus' name. 
All right, thanks for putting up with that. Verse 15. Here the Lord said, he didn't give in to Ananias' excuse. He goes, again, he just says, go. (laughs) For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Here we see that Saul is being chosen not just for salvation, but to be a servant. His conversion is also his commission where he says, I've saved you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Not by works, lest no one should boast. But the next verse there in Ephesians mentions that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There's a plan for your life, guys. As long as you draw breath on this side of salvation and conversion, as long as you draw breath, that is meant for service. And when your job's done, you get to go home. For millions of years, you get to go home. And the question is, are those around you going to join you? And it's not going to be easy. It says Saul's going to have to suffer for this thing. It's actually in his suffering he's most effective. The last eight chapters of Acts, he is put under arrest. And a long journey from Jerusalem to Rome on trial after trial. And in my opinion, reading through Acts, that's when he's most effective. That his chains... His suffering, God is actually using to give him validity and credibility to a watching world. As Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 17. So Ananias went. He obeyed. I always wonder, what, what if Ananias didn't go? Right? And what if Barnabas... What if he didn't go and be a friend of Saul later in this, in this story? What if Stephen wasn't faithful in front of Saul as he was stoned? But these servants were faithful, just as Ananias was. And he went, and he found Saul. And he laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. I think Saul in this moment was feeling a little alone. He was blind. He heard a voice from Jesus that no one else heard. So he's probably feeling a little estranged from his companions. And then here a guy shows up and puts his arms on him and says, Brother. Saul knows he's got a friend. Might be his first true friend in the faith. Some of you might remember who that first friend in the faith was. Some of you might not have it yet. And I hope that you stick around after church today to meet somebody. You might meet an Ananias today. Some of you might consider sticking around after church to be an Ananias. (laughs) 
someone here that desperately needs that first friend. They say that that's a huge deal for someone to stay in the church. It's if they have one good friend. If they answer yes or no to that, that makes a huge difference <laughs> whether someone is in the church or not. The fellowship is important. And so God sent that fellowship to Saul. Verse 19. Afterward, Saul ate some food. He regained his strength. And Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. So we see that his conversion, he's fellowshipping now. But he also saw that this conversion was linked to his commission. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying that he is indeed the Son of God. He went to these synagogues to kill, eager to kill, and instead he is bringing salvation. I mean, that is the story of a drunkard going to the bar again, and on the way he becomes a Christian, and by the time he gets there, he tells people about Jesus. Praise God. And yet everyone's saying, isn't, isn't this the guy we saw on the floor last night? <laughs> Which only furthered the effectiveness of his testimony. Judge all they want. They cannot refute a changed life. And that's what happens. Verse 21. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation? among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And did not he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? You see, Paul is a prime example that even of the worst of sinners, God's hand can save. And he knew that testimony wasn't something to hide. Okay? He embraced it. He shares that testimony often. I always thought that Saul got his name changed. He didn't. God never told him, forget Saul. Don't talk about that anymore. He didn't. Once he leaves Israel, he goes by his Roman name, which is Paul. He never dropped the Saul thing. He wanted people to know, yeah, I'm the same guy who used to be laying on the floor. <laughs> and look what God has done. Not by my own works. Not that I might boast. He goes, I'm the worst of sinners, the most unworthy to be an apostle. Apostle means to be sent. I don't deserve it. That's what makes Paul so qualified to be God's chosen vessel. Because that vessel, like a clay pot, was so busted up that God's light could shine right through it. That God would get all the credit for this man's life. It was safe for God to use Saul. He couldn't become arrogant very quick. He always knew, I killed these people. Yet God has intervened and turned my life around, and now I want to serve them. 
Verse 22. Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus could not refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. His life being one of those proofs. And then at the end of the chapter, we get a summary statement for this section saying that the church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit that also grew in number. Let's go to the next slide here about serving like Saul. Saul can save the worst of sinners. So don't give up on others. Anyone you mark an enemy of God, they could be the next Saul. Because there's nothing by our own merit that we're of faith. Therefore, it's nothing of someone else's merit that God might save them. And don't give up on yourself because God hasn't. He wants to show his grace through your life. Even through the darkness. So I want to close again with this first Timothy passage. And I want to pray it for us. Verse 12. So we thank you, Christ Jesus our Lord, for you've given us strength to do your work. You desire to trust us and appoint us to serve you. Even though we used to blaspheme your name in our insolence, we hurt your people. But God, by your mercy on us, you forgave our ignorance and our unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord is. He fills us with faith and he fills us with love that come through Christ Jesus. Verse 15. We believe the trustworthiness of your word. We accept it, that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners of which we are the worst. But God had mercy on us so that Christ could use us to be a prime example of his great patience for even the worst of sinners, that others might realize that they too can believe and receive your eternal life. God, all honor and glory to you forever and ever, for you are the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. You alone are God. And the church says, Amen.